about that only because, and Hosea's whole point of writing that was because that exemplifies, it paints the physical picture of the spiritual unfaithfulness of God's people. God said, go and take for yourself a wife who is unfaithful. And what is his reasoning? Remember I said that's not marriage counsel, young men. God's not telling you to go find the biggest floozy in town and marry her. That's not what he said. He says, Hosea, you are a case study in redeeming love. It's the name of this series of messages. A case study in redeeming love. God said, Hosea, go and take Gomer because she will be unfaithful to you and my people Israel have been unfaithful to me. Not only has Israel been unfaithful, not only has Judah, the two southern tribes, been unfaithful, you and I have been unfaithful, have we not? Who would stand among us and say, since the day I followed Christ, I've lived a life of complete obedience. I've never once longed for Egypt, whatever your Egypt may be. I've never once wanted to return to my sin. I've never once thought in my heart, maybe I shouldn't have followed Christ. It costs too much. We are unfaithful. You and I are Gomer. We are spiritual prostitutes, whores. And yet, the case study would be incomplete if we stopped with Gomer's unfaithfulness, would it not? Because Gomer goes from bad to worse. She goes from being unfaithful at Hosea's house to fleeing from Hosea. And Hosea's response is interesting. Hosea provides for his bride, his wife, even in her day of rebellion. He clothes her. He feeds her. He protects her. He hedges her, the Bible says. She didn't know he was doing it, but he was always protecting and providing for his bride. And then the day came that she continued to rebel. And what did he do? He drew back his protection and he drew back, drew back his provision and he let her run headlong into her sin so that she would repent. That was his goal It was not to punish his wife. Neither is it God's intention to punish you as his children. Damn you, in other words, to hell. Rather, but his love is a disciplining love. We talked about that. God often lets us wander in our sin because of our rebellion. And he withdraws provision and protection at times. Not to utterly destroy us, but to wake us up. To bring us to the point of repentance and returning to Him. But Gomer continued in her sin just like many of you. She was unfaithful. And then, chapter 3. Five short verses. The most powerful chapter, I believe, in the Bible. The second most powerful story in the Bible. Hosea goes to Samaria to the capital of his country, Israel. And his wife is paraded across the stage as a sex slave. 
naked for the whole world to see. Hosea, if he was a self-respecting man, would have left the auction and let her go her way. But rather than being a self-respecting man, he was a man to paint the picture of God's undying, unyielding, unbending pursuit of His children and of His bride. He won His bride again. He paid a high price for His bride a second time. She was already His and yet, He was willing to buy her again. He took her into his home. He loved her. He forgave her. He set boundaries and said, you're now mine. No longer can you run after the world. No longer can you do the things you once did. You're mine. But I've provided all you'll ever need. Then we come to chapter 4, where the drama is stopped, the picture is stopped, and the real reality is shown. Hosea chapter 4, the climax of the passage early is this. You have not loved me. You have not been faithful to me. But the most grievous thing you've done, Israel, is you do not know your God. You have no knowledge of me. God condemned them for their lack of knowledge. We talked about that lack of knowledge. And so today, we come to Hosea chapter 5. With that as a backdrop, the fact that they are unfaithful, the fact that they don't know God, then we find that God knows our true nature. We don't know God, but God knows us. That's an alarming fact, isn't it? That ought to bother you a little, shouldn't it? Do you kind of feel naked when you stop and think about that God knows you? I thought about, as an example, an earthly example, I thought about this. The fact that uh, when I would get ready to go on a date as a teenager, my mom would often say this to me. Remember, y'all know, your mom has used the same line I see through. Oh, I know. That dreaded statement. Remember, whatever you do tonight, you do in front of Jesus Christ. It's a little alarming and unnerving, isn't it? Now, if I was made for TV preacher, I would tell you I always listen to my mom. But I'm me. The reality is God knows our nature better than we know ourselves, doesn't He? The reality is even though you know God knows you, even though you know that He discerns even the intentions of your heart, yet you still by nature rebel and sin. Just like I did often when I was a teenager. So it's alarming to know God knows us, but it's not enough. Because our nature is so unbridled, so unyielding, so rebellious, that we're willing even to set aside the thought that Jesus is watching everything we do, and we still go about our sin. But if we ever draw back and 
step back from the pleasures of sin for the moment and just think about it. God knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. It's more unnerving when you stop and think God not only knows what you do, He knows what you think. That's one for you, isn't it? How brutal would the world be if we were all like the movie that was popularized where the guy was a lawyer and couldn't lie. You remember that? He just said whatever came out. You know, he's continually sticking his foot in his mouth. I have a bad habit of that. Just just being honest, I have a real bad habit of that. Some of you may also suffer from foot-in-mouth disease. But you know, I've gotten better as I've gotten older at playing the game of covering up what I think. I can look you right dead in the eye, if I'm not careful, and tell you how nice your shirt looks when I think it's the most horrendous shirt in all the world. In other words, we as humans get good at hiding our thoughts. But you can't hide them from God. Not only does He know what you do, He knows what you think. But it's worse than that. If he only knew what we did and what we thought, that'd be bad enough, wouldn't it? He knows your very essence. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what you're going to think before you think it. He doesn't have to wait for the good-looking woman to walk down the street and you to take the second look. He knows you. He knows you, and He knows me, and He knows every heart of every man in all the world. One of the most gripping statements in the Gospels is when it says Jesus needed no one to tell Him what they thought, for He knew the heart of every man. So you, some of you, are good at playing the game. You put on the fine clothes. You've come to the beautiful building. You've sat through a moving presentation of God's glory through song and prayer and scripture reading. And you even shed a few tears. And everybody thinks, whoa, how spiritual you are. And what I'm telling you is God knows you. You can fool me, and I can fool myself, but no man escapes the eye of who God is and who He knows you to be. Hosea chapter 5 can be summarized. I gave you a summary statement, a purpose statement. God pursues us with redeeming love. God pursues us with this redeeming love even though He knows our sinful nature. If I stopped with the fact that God knows you are a sinner, you'd believe this place heaped with guilt, shame, and you would go home and say there's no hope. That's not what Hosea 5 says. Hosea 5 says, I know your sin, I know you, I know who you are, and yet I will not cease to pursue you even to the ends of the earth. 
we get pictures in the Old Testament of God saying, I will gather my children as far as the east is from the west. We get the picture of the New Testament where Christ says, if you lift me, when I am lifted up, in John 3.15, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. We get the picture of Paul when he says that God, who God knows, who He knows beforehand, He calls. Who He calls, He predestines. Who He predestines, He then justifies. And who He justifies, He will glorify. In other words, God's pursuing love never stops. You say, I'm in rebellion. I'm running from God. I'm as far as the east is or the west is. I've rejected the cross when Christ was lifted up. I'm not chosen. All I can say is, I'm going to preach the gospel and the Spirit just might take it today and plant it in your heart and bring you to Him. Because His pursuing love cannot be stopped. Spurgeon called the Spirit the hound of heaven. We were talking about the shower. That, uh, some people don't like that. They, you know, David, Cale, and Paul like that because they like hounds. Some people don't like to talk about God as a hound. Spurgeon must have been a coon hunter. I don't know if they got coons in England, but he may have hunted them out. Hey, the hound of heaven, what did he mean? He meant like a hound who hits a blood trail. God's Spirit, when He gets on you, will not stop until He has treed you and brought you to the tree, the cross, Jesus Christ. He won't stop. You can say, I won't have it. You can say, I'll go my own way. You can say, I love Egypt more than I love you. And He says, I love you. I'm going to get you. You're mine. You say, I don't like to think of God that way. That makes God seem lower. Hey, He tells us, as Aaron said, who He is. In John chapter 4, He said to the woman at the well, Jesus did, you're not seeking God. Who, who's seeking? God is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. He's seeking His sons and daughters as far as the east is from the west. That's Hosea chapter 5. Gomer, you can run. Israel, you can run. Church, you can run. But I will find you and I'll bring you to myself. I will call you. I will bring you through Christ to me. I will not be stopped. I will pursue you to the end of the earth. When someone says that biblical theology is dead, I have to question them. Is what I've just described to you dead? That the God of the universe would take such a mind as to come after one like you until He has you? Is that dead? Does that need jazzing up? Does it need some bells and whistles to make you come? I hope not. I hope that message is enough. That you would say, oh, I don't know who that God is, but I want to know Him. I hope right now the Spirit is implanting in your heart the desire that you would look to Christ who is lifted up and you would come to Him. Because God pursues us with His redeeming love even though He knows our sinful nature. In other words, sinner, 
lost man. I'm not speaking down to you. I'm one of you. I am lost. I am a sinner just like you in that way by my nature. But I am saved by the grace of God. And what I'm saying to you is no matter how bad your sin is, no matter how far you've run from Him, His love is deep enough and broad enough and long enough and strong enough to bring you to Christ. If your heart beats today, you have not finally offended Him. He has not sentenced you to eternal condemnation. There's still hope. There is still hope in Christ. There's still hope. Now let's look at Hosea chapter 5. God knows our true nature. Have I said that enough to maybe grab you? God knows our true nature. If we look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5, we find that God knows us. He says, O priest, O house of Israel, O house of the king, hear this, pay attention, give ear. What are we giving ear to? For this judgment is for you. You have laid a trap in Tabor. You have defiled Mizpah. And I will discipline you. God knows us. God knows us. They had taken the worship of the Most High God and they had defiled it into idolatry. They had defiled it. God knew it. God knew it. God knows our sin, the sin of our leaders, and the sin of all the people. God knows us. He says it right here in secession, doesn't He? O priest! O Israel, O King, God knows us. God knows our sin. God knows the sin of everyone in this room. God knows the sin of our leaders. God knows us. Inside and out, He knows us. Ezekiel chapter 8, you don't turn there, but I just want to show you a parallel to this knowing. In the day of Ezekiel, there was a lot of sin going on, and say it around, you know, straightforwardly, okay, without going around couching it. There was a lot of sin. And it had gone to the highest levels of leadership. Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel sitting with some leaders from Israel. Ha- I like to think they're having tea and crumpets. And they're talking about the economy and such. And God grabs Ezekiel by a lock of his hair. Did your daddy ever grab your ear and say, come here. Let me explain something to you. That's what God did to Ezekiel. Don't sit with those defiled leaders and listen to that garbage about how they love me. They want to worship me. I'll show you what they do. And he pulled him to the gate, the city leadership. He said, you see this gate? You see that? You see that image of the jealous God? You see that? Oh, yeah, now let me open your eyes and you'll see what they're doing. They were worshiping idols at the gate of the city. He said, that's bad, isn't it, Ezekiel? The civic leaders of Israel are worshiping false gods. That's bad. I can imagine Ezekiel saying, oh God, that's awful. At least we have the those who really believe. At least we have leaders like the priest. He grabs him by the hair. Let me show you. Snatches him to a hole in the side of the wall of the temple. He says, dig in there. Dig in there, boy. He digs, he goes inside, and when he gets inside, there's hieroglyphics on the inside of the walls of the temple and idols propped up in the place 
hidden from the view of the people, but where the priests were, and they had their incense censers, and they were raising a cloud of incense to these idols in God's temple. And God said, what do you think, Ezekiel said? It's worse than I thought. Not only are the city leaders sinning and worshiping idols, now the priests are worshiping idols in the walls of the temple. And God grabbed him one more time and said, let me show you something else. It's worse than that. He took him all the way to the heart of the temple. The holy of holies. And there in the holy of holies, where no Israelite was allowed to enter except the high priest, was a statue to a false god. God said, for this sin, I will judge these people and I will have no mercy. It happened in Ezekiel's day. It happened in Hosea's day. O priest, O Israel, O house of the king. Do you hear it? It's bad when it's the people of Israel. It's bad when it's the civic leaders. It's the worst when it's the priest. That's not all. That's not the only parallel passage we might find in Scripture. We might look at Romans chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but you can write the reference down. Romans 1, 18 through 32, where all the Gentile nations followed after idolatry, seeing God displayed, as Aaron said, in the general revelation all around them. They didn't worship God. They worshiped the creature, not the Creator. And we're led to believe that their leaders led them that way. Their wise men took them to worship idols. God knows our sin. He knows the sin of our leaders. And He knows the sin of all people. God knows us in our nature, who we are. We are sinners to the core. God is not slack in understanding or knowing the current situation that we live in today. Don't fool yourself. Mark Dever, in a book I was reading this week, said he was at Cambridge at school and he was talking to a Muslim friend. And the Muslim friend said, it's awful all the moral sin that goes on in a Christian nation like Great Britain. And Dever said, this is no Christian nation. There is no Christian nation on the earth. There's not one. Hey, America, United States, wake up. Wake up. God knows the current situation. We feign prayers in the highest offices of this land with our lips. We say, oh God, be with us as we do our business today. And then we go about our sinful, idolatrous practices as if He does not exist. And I say, God knows us. He not only knows the house of the king, he knows the house of the people. Because when you're watching CNN and you're blasting those, those civic leaders, God then begins to witness, what about your house? What about your idols? Do I need to grab you by the ear and take you into your bedroom and show you your computer screen that you might know you sit and worship it and the images which it can produce? Do I need to grab you by the ear and take you to your checkbook and open it up so you might see that with your money you worship all these other gods? Need I take you to the gathering place of the Christian? God might say, 
of our modern situation. Where we put on the facade of holiness and we live lives of degradation and sin. God knows us. He is no fool. He is no fool. And I'm going to tell you, by the authority of God, you are a fool. You are a fool. I am a fool if I believe I can deceive him. He knew the house of the king. He knew the house of the people. He knew the house of the priest. And he said, this judgment is for everybody. This judgment is for everybody because God knows us. He knows our leaders. He knows the people. God not only knows these general things, these things that are going on in our world, but God knows our sin of religious practice or activity. God knows us. Look at verse 6 in Hosea chapter 5. Look at verse 6. With their flocks and herds, I can almost sense God's hint of sarcasm. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord. Can't you see the people of Israel on their holy days with their flocks gathered up? Oh, Brother Joe, we're going to seek the Lord. God knows our religious activity. And He sees right through it. He's no fool. They gather their flocks and they take their herds and they go to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. I thought God wanted us to worship Him. He does. In spirit and truth. He has no desire for our work. He has no need of our service to Him as if He needeth anything. He doesn't need our flocks. He doesn't need our herds. He doesn't need our religious practice. He has no need of anything. God wants us to know Him. God wants us to love Him. God wants us to know Him and love Him. He doesn't want all our work and our frenzy and our hard activity. That offends you, some of you. I know it does. It used to offend me when people said things like that. Some of you have spent your entire life serving God. And all you've done is built a heap of idols that on the judgment day will condemn you to hell. And it looks good. Don't fool yourself. You come to a place like this, it's warm, almost warm enough to put you to sleep if I talk silently enough. If he'd just get a little quieter for long enough, I could doze off. You come and look nice. It's a beautiful day outside. You say nice things. You do nice things. We got our flocks and our herds. Oh, we're going to seek the Lord. 
And heaven says, you won't find me. You won't find me. God knows our religious deeds. He sees them for what they are. You can fool me and I can fool you. God is no fool. And you are a fool and I'm a fool if I think for any split second that I can pull one over on him. He wants you to love him. He wants you to know him. I'm not asking for irreligious acts. That's not what I'm asking for. I'm not saying that coming to church is a bad thing. Please don't leave saying, the preacher said we don't have to come to church anymore. Because God's not there. That's not at all what I'm saying. Let me give you some biblical examples of what I'm saying. So you can understand, so you can grasp what I'm saying. Maybe you'll see it in Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. You don't have to flip there, write it down. I want you to go there later. Cain, what did God say? Cain was a tiller of the field. And his brother Abel was a keeper of the flocks. And God had prescribed a sacrifice to Adam and Eve that was to kill a member of the flock. That was the sacrifice he desired. Cain brought the fruit of his labor. Do you see the connection? His religious idols. Look what my hands have done, God. Surely God will take this. And God said, Cain, Cain, be careful. What did he say? Sin crouches at the door and it has a desire to rule over you. But you must rule over it. You must reject it. You must turn to me. That's what God was saying. Did Cain do it? No. Cain left that warning and killed his brother. His religion was his love. He did not love his God which brought him to sacrifice. You see, sacrifice is a religious act when it is done to impress God rather than in the reverse, knowing God and loving Him, therefore obeying Him in sacrifice. You see the difference? You see how dangerous it is when you get them flipped around? You might even murder a man. Well, there's other examples like Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 verses 1 through 3. God spends the first nine chapters of Leviticus saying, you shall do this and you shall do that in my worship and you shall not do anything else except what I tell you. And then Leviticus 10 stands out like a screaming warning to us. It says that Nadab and Abihu The sons of Aaron, having received the word of God, then took up their censers of fire and offered strange fire on the altar of God. And God sent a flame from the altar and consumed them. They were worshiping God. They were taking their censer and they were going with their incense and they were putting it on the altar of Jehovah as a worship to Him. How dare God strike them dead? Well, if you look in Leviticus 9, he said, nobody shall do this but the high priest Aaron. Nobody else shall do this. 
Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron, not Aaron. And God is no fool. He knows their heart. What are they doing? They're seeking to exalt themselves in the eyes of the people of Israel as if our, our dad is just our dad. We're from his flesh. We're as good as he is. God strikes that rebellion down immediately. If that's not enough example in the Bible for you, maybe Saul will be a good, better picture. Because in 1 Samuel, we find Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 8 through 15, after conquering the Philistine city and taking his captives, he got impatient. He got impatient. And he said, Samuel's not coming, so the people are going to scatter and the Philistines are going to kill us. We'll offer this sacrifice. Oh, I know it's Samuel's job. And God said, don't do it until Samuel comes. But what does God know? God knows you, Saul. God knows your heart. God knows you. He is no fool, Saul. And you are a fool if you think he doesn't know your motives. You want the place of king and priest. You want to unify in yourself all power over Israel. You want to rule them with an iron rod and a hard fist. Don't fool me, Saul. You're fooling yourself. And God stripped the kingdom from Saul for something as small as offering offering worship to God in the wrong place at the wrong time by the wrong prescribed method. God is no fool. He knows you. He knows your nature. Don't come in here with your good deeds and your uh, voluptuous words and your nice dress and say, oh, brother, it's a great day in the Lord, isn't it? When God knows you. Much better to come in as a publican beating the chest. Saying, I'm a sinner. I have no hope. Much better. Don't come in with your offering and put it in the box hoping it bounces off the bottom so everybody knows how big it was. Because y'all cut a bigger slot so I can put more money in. Don't start that. God is not fooled. Better to be the widow with one half penny. And you say, oh God, whatever I've got is yours. Because God knows you. God knows you. Don't sell all you've got. And lay half of it at the apostles' feet like Ananias and Sapphira. You want another biblical example? There's one. Lay it down in the presence of the people with the religious smile. Oh, how we love God. God struck them dead. And Peter pronounced the judgment. You lied to God. You did something He did not require and then you lied to God. May I ask you a question? Are you lying to God today? Do you want to know what Hosea 5 is about? He's going to pursue you. He's not going to forget to come after you. But listen. He knows you. He knows your nature. He knows your religious acts. Don't lie to Him. Don't lie. Oh God. Longs for His sons and daughters to run to Him in confession and say, we are the chief of sinners. I have no claim on Your grace. 
But oh, would you not give me your grace through Jesus Christ. He longs for that. And when you say that, He runs to you. And He clothes you as Hosea did Gomer. And He takes you home. And you are safe and provided for forever. Don't come saying, I got it all figured out. I'm a religious person. I do good things. God has to accept me. No, He may strike you dead. In Matthew 7, you say, well, He hasn't done it yet. Don't mock God with that kind of stuff. God is no fool. And you're a fool if you think you can fool Him. Hey, there's a day coming when all the works of man will be before God and He will say, either you're with me or you're against me. And it's not based on your long list of good deeds. It's based on the merit of Jesus Christ and whether you have placed full faith in Him. Jeffrey Dahmer. A man like Jeffrey Dahmer can find forgiveness in Christ. And a man as holy as the Pope can split hell wide open. God is no fool. God is no fool. And He knows you. And He knows me. He knows us. He knows our nature. He knows our religious deeds. We've looked at these biblical examples. And it just makes me think. You know, you look at verse 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. What they were doing prevented them from coming to God. That's a lot of the problem with people like us. Our deeds keep us from coming to God. We're like the rich young ruler. Oh, you only lack one thing. Do away with all your good deeds and just believe in me. Oh, I can't do that. I got a reputation to uphold. Some of you have been in church 50 years. Some of you have been in church 40 years. Some of you have been in church 20 years. Some of you, this is your first trip to church. And you would say, I've spent my life doing good. I've given to the poor. I've taken in the needy. I've I've come to church. I've taught Sunday school. I've been a deacon. Rubbish. That's what Paul said. It's all rubbish. Except to know Him. It's all rubbish. Paul's not being irreligious and neither would you be irreligious. You would be the most rightly religious if you would deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ today. You'd be the most truly religious. I pause on this one because I think this is the sin that will beset and take down grace fellowship is religiosity. I don't know if that's a word or not, but sounds good. Religiosity. How can I know if this is me? Simple test. Whenever the next time you go to do something, whatever it is, say, now why am I doing this? The guy who discipled me did this to me, and it was a torture for a long time. We were talking, he said, now next time that you go to do something courteous, nice, good, religious, stop and say, what is my motivation? Why am I doing this? Well, it was at a conference, and it was at Christmas conference. Now it's called New Year's conference, and we were in Atlanta, and and I was sitting on a bus, and it was full, and these young ladies came on. Now, my wife was there. I wasn't trying to impress them to get a date. I just simply didn't want them to think I was rude. So I went to get up out of my seat. The right thing to do, right? It's a good thing. 
You ought to do that. And immediately that question came to mind. What am I doing? What I was doing was trying to save face for my fellow man. The next time I went to have a quiet time, our time alone with God, we had code words like TOG. Time alone with God. I said, if, if you ever met an old camp, Janet shaking her head, her kids used to say that to her all the time. Talk. We walked around saying, did y'all have a TOG today? We were cool. We had a lingo. Time alone with God. The next time I sat down to do it, that question ringed in my mind. Why? Are you opening God's Word to check it? So you can go to the calf and tell your buddies what you learned today. What is your motivation? And what I'm telling you is, whatever it is, you apply that test and you'll know yourself better. You may not know, you will not know yourself as well as God knows you, but you'll know yourself better. And you'll be getting closer to the answer of whether you know God or you don't know Him. Because if at the end of the day you find that you're motivated by self and others and not the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can say confidently you probably don't know Christ at all. And therefore you're lost. Israel was doing a lot of good stuff along with their idolatry. They just weren't doing it in and through Christ. They were doing it in and through themselves. And God said... I abhor that, and I will judge it. God knew their nature. God knew their religious acts. The seeker-sensitive movement comes to mind. We're always trying to find these seekers, these mysterious seekers who Paul says don't exist in Romans chapter 3. No one seeks after God. No, not one. We're going to build a whole church movement around getting people entertained and into the church. Except the pioneer of that movement, Bill Hobbles, said that was a waste of time. After 25, 30 years, sorry, we went the wrong way. Y'all shouldn't have followed us. He said that. We didn't know what we were doing. I know Romans 3 could have been very instructive. There's nobody seeking Him. So you can't attract them with the gospel. They're repulsed and repelled by the gospel. They run from you if you tow the Bible. That's the truth. Religion never. How can I know I'm in in religion and not true obedience? Religion never abandons its sin. True repentance abandons sin and clings to Christ. Look at what it says in chapter 5 verse 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. You never turn from your sin if you're a religious person. You always find an excuse for why you do what you do, why you believe what you believe, why you think what you think, why your heart is the way it is. There's always an excuse. Well, it's just who I am. It's the way God's made me. I'm a religious person. No, you're damned. You're outside of Christ. And when I said that, you just got offended. So if it offends you, remember the purpose of this chapter. God pursues us with His redeeming love even though He knows our religious sin nature. He keeps coming. He's the hand of heaven. God will not be found in religion. He will not be found in mere religion. God knows our hypocrisy. Verse 13. 
God knows our hypocrisy. If you look at verse 13, it says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, they went to God and worshipped. Huh? No. No. Then Ephraim went to Assyria and to the great king. And God says, He can't cure you. He can't heal your wound. Some of you are going to be tempted today to say, Oh, I'll run to this salve. I'll study my Bible more. I'll pray more. I'll give more. I'll take in orphans. I'll take care of widows. I'll do all the good things the Bible says. And God says, That's not going to heal you. That's not going to heal you. That can't fix your wound. What can wash away my sins? Nothing. What? Some of it? Maybe another thing? Maybe one more thing? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What should Cain have done when sin was crashing at the door? Run to God and repent of his sin and cling to him and say, Oh God, I'm a sinner. What? Should Nadab and Abihu done when they, what should they have done when it crossed their mind? Let's go give some strange fire. They should have grabbed each other and said, Oh God, help us. Don't do that. We're so sorry. They should have fallen on their face and they would not have been consumed. What should Saul have done? He should have waited and repented. Repented. That's not what he does. He gets angry at God for taking the kingdom and he rushes headlong into a suicidal attack on the Philistines to prove God wrong. And then he hunts David for years to say, God's not going to take the kingdom from me. It was utter rebellion. That was his response. What did Ananias and Sapphira do? We don't know. God struck them dead. But what they could have done is when somebody conceived the idea, let's give half and keep the other, the other one should have said, no, let's run to God and repent of our self-pride. That's what they should have done. But religion won't let you do that. Religion won't let you do it. God knows our hypocrisy. He sees us turn to the world. He sees us turn to the church. He sees us turn to all manner of things, family and friends. And He says, it won't heal you. It won't correct your wound. Only Christ. Only Christ. Secondly, God pursues us with redeeming love. Even in our state of rebellion, God tenderly draws our attention away from sin. Now, I want to Close the message by looking at Hosea 5, 12, 14, and 15. This is unbelievable. I've just described to you, if I describe something like that to you, you would say, what would your response be? Forget them. I don't want them. Isn't that what we would say? If they don't want me, I don't want them. It's not at all what God says. Look what he says in verse 12. God tenderly draws our attention away from sin. In verse 12, he's like a moth to Ephraim. Calvin said a moth flaps its wings and breaks the deepest of concentration. James Montgomery Boyce said, 
When I was a boy, I used to sit on the porch at night and read with the light on, and the moths came, and no matter how much I was reading my book, when the moth got near me and fluttered, I always looked at it. God says, I'm a moth to Ephraim, tenderly drawing. They're looking and focused and intent on sin, and God, hey, don't do it. Don't go that way. Tender in his draw. God draws them tenderly. God not only draws them tenderly, but God destroys their life of sin with fierce jealousy and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When a moth has laid its larva, that larva may eat through the cloth and you may not even know it until you pull it out of the closet to put it on. He said it's like Judah went to the to their store of goods and pulled out their finest robe and when they picked it up it went into ashes dry rot God destroys your life of sin sinner who God is after know this he tenderly draws and then he destroys your life he makes you despise the sin that you so much love he makes you sick By the thought of your own self. He makes you abhor everything in your life. I'm going to try to get your attention. I'm going to draw you tenderly like a moth. I'm going to eat your life away. So that it falls away into ashes. Judah. I'm not ready to relent. I won't stop. I'm going to keep pursuing. He's not done. God then after that. I take this as a progression. He tenderly draws. He destroys our life of sin. And finally God abandons us in our sin for a season. So we will cry for salvation. Look what it says. In verse uh, 14. I will be like a lion to Ephraim. I will be like a young lion to Judah. I will destroy them. I will rip them to pieces. You can hide dry rot. You can't hide being delimbed. You can't hide that. You know, when God first starts drawing you out of your sinful practice, He does it privately, tenderly. Just you and Him. Then He puts holes in your life. Things you used to love, now you find you love them less. And, but, and you're a miserable person, but you're still hiding it. Rearrange life, make myself look good, put the good face forward, right? Then God says, I love you too much to let that stand. I don't want you to simply improve. I want you to know me. And then he delimbs you like a lion does his prey. He pounces on your life and he utterly destroys it. And what I'm telling you is that's love. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't destroy your life. He'd let you keep enjoying it. And then on the day of judgment, he would convict you of your sin and you'd be condemned for eternity. But he destroys that life you love so much. He robs you like a young lion does its prey. Even I will tear and go away. He'll rip you asunder and then he'll go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue you. When God gets to this stage, he's done. He's done with the tender draw and the things you might get hide and cover over, he gets serious and down to business and he makes you such a mess that there's no way to hide it. You keep telling, you ever been there? You keep telling people, 
Oh, I'm fine. And they're like, if you want to keep believing that. Oh, I don't have any problems. I'm okay. I'm all right. No. Everybody sees it. Now, if he stopped there, what I'm telling you is that would be bad, wouldn't it? That wouldn't look like love at all. But look what it says in the last verse. I will return again to my place until expectations, until they repent, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. Look. God isn't saying, maybe this will work. God's saying, it's going to work. After I destroy their love for their sin life, I'm going to return to my place, and they're going to come. They're coming now, because God has drawn them to himself. He does it tenderly. He pokes holes in it. Then he eats it alive. He will not fail in bringing his children salvation. Listen. Listen to me, church. You may be here in some condition of backsliding, of sin, of, of I don't know what you're guilty of. You're not so far from God that he does not hear you acknowledge your guilt and call to him. You're not too far. Lost man, you may be sitting in the comfort of your sin today. Trust me. Trust me when I say you will be uncomfortable at the day of judgment. And I'd be a terrible friend to you if I tried to tell you any different. Some of you are at different stages I cannot apply it completely to your life, but I will say this. Wherever you are, the response that God hears from heaven and heals your sickness is the response of, I am the chief of sinners. I deserve no pity. I deserve no mercy. I deserve no grace. Oh, God. Count me with Christ. Cover me with Him. Robe me with His righteousness. Please save me. God hears it. God answers. Let's pray. Father, as we think over this scripture, which is.